Please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Found them. Good thing, too. Handy little invention right there. As we proceed today, I'd, I'd just like you to keep in mind 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that you can refer to later. We've talked about this a lot in this church over the last three or four years. And... Um, the idea of giving and where the giving goes and, and such. And this isn't, the disagreements on this aren't necessarily one of salvation, but could be, uh, I would say they are a point of sanctification and becoming more like Christ and compassionate and holy. And as we look today at these passages, there's going to be a few things that I say that you might not disagree with. There are disagreements at time in uh, in the church about peripheral things, yet I hope that it becomes clear to you what we're speaking about today because it has changed me. It has changed me as a person in my thinking and as a Christian, and I I owe a lot of it to this gospel of Luke. A lot of it to this gospel has been amazing uh, to work through and to see Christ's life. I'm going to read beginning in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So Jesus said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself, and then return. And he called ten of his slaves, and gave them ten minas, and said to them, Do business with this until I return. I've titled this message, Taking Care of Business. If you've been alive on planet Earth any time in the last 50 years, I assure you that you've heard a song from a band called Bachman Turner Overdrive that they called Taking Care of Business. It's a very well-known song. The refrain goes something like this. And we be taking care of business every day, taking care of business every way. We be taking care of business, it's all mine, taking care of business and working overtime. You know, the bizarre irony, however, in that song is that the writer proclaims that because he's a musician, he likes to work at nothing all day. So the listener, as usual with rock and roll, departs with no moral improvement, right? It's just a wash. There is, however... A point in that song I want to share, and it's, it's during a musical interlude where the singer speaks these words. Take good care of my business while I'm away every day. And, and from this day forward, whenever you hear that song, and, and you will, hopefully you'll never listen again in the same way because you'll be reminded that those words say exactly, precisely what Jesus is telling us in this passage. Take good care of my business while I'm away every day. And, and this is because Jesus now, he's, he's nearing Jerusalem. He's, he's only about a week from crucifixion. And, and because his disciples wrongly expected that God's physical kingdom was going to appear immediately. That's what they thought. 
So Jesus provides this parable to correct their misunderstanding. Um, the lesson that we're going to see in the parable, uh, there, here Jesus suggests, you know, I am going away. Now remember in those days, travel was slow. It was tedious. To, to say that he was traveling to a distant country, uh, a place far off, would mean I'm going to be gone a while, all right? But in Revelation 22, verse 12, we're told that Jesus is coming back, and he says, My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So take good care of my business every day when I'm away. This passage is known as the parable of money usage. The mina, it was a, it was a sum of money equal to about 100 days' wages, And as you see in verse 13, the master gave his ten servants one mina each. Each got one mina. There were ten minas, ten servants. And he tells them, do business with this until I return. Each servant got the identical amount to invest. I'm going to be a spoiler here, all right? Going to ruin it for you before we even get deep into this next week. The mina represents the gospel. It's the gospel. For, for that which every Christian equally shares, equally has to do God's business with, is the gospel. We all have the gospel. And we decide to, what we decide to do with the gospel until our master returns, it's going to affect our eternal reward when he comes. That, that's, the parable is that simple. After Christ ascends to heaven... There will be some who are very faithful with his message. There will be some that are somewhat faithful with his message. There, there will be some that are not faithful with his message. And there will be some who are enemies who strive against the gospel all together. That's what we're going to see in, in this parable. Each, each of those will receive just retribution, either good or bad, for what they have done when the nobleman returns. Over the next two weeks, I'm going to... Um, divide this passage into two parts. The first today is going to be the response that we have after receiving the gospel as Christians. Next Sunday will be our remuneration or or our reward that we will be granted when Christ returns. And whenever we encounter a passage that says something like this, it begins anything like verse 11 saying, while they were listening to these things, we, we mustn't forget to go back and rediscover what these things are that they were listening to. What had they been listening to? This is answered in the previous context, namely verse, verses 9 and 10. Today salvation has come to this house, speaking of Zacchaeus, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. This is the launch into the parable. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. This parable of the money usage, it's uniquely evangelistic in tone. Uh, what we do with the gospel message, not primarily money, but what we do with the gospel itself, we are to seek the lost, which again will be our primary focus next week. At the same time, The previous context also implies there's an evidence to salvation. We we talked about that 
last week about repentance and the change of heart and, and how we are renewed after the Holy Spirit um, regenerates our heart and we, we are made alive to God. That affects our money. That affects our money. I, I didn't hit that very hard last week. I'm, I'm going to back us up just a little bit today. Don't, don't miss this point. Jesus bases his declaration, his, his assertion that salvation had come to the house of Zacchaeus upon his acting charitably towards the poor. Previously, we know from our study last week that his reputation was that of acquiring and hoarding everything for himself as, as a tax collector at the top of the pyramid. He saw that that brought public reproach Upon Jesus, when Jesus was going to come to his house, Zacchaeus then made an announcement. If you were here, you were there for that announcement. I'm going to give half of everything I have away to the poor. The emphasis of the message was when when Jesus enters your life, it changes you. It changes you, and that's what he did to Zacchaeus. Through spiritual regeneration, our, our mind changes about everything. So one thing it changes especially about it is money. So the parable of the money usage, being faithful about the gospel also challenges us on using our money and being faithful for what God has done in acting charitably towards us. And that as we read in our scripture reading earlier, that though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. And, and Paul uses this as a mirror for us being sacrificial towards one another. The very gospel itself is a mirror held up to our being, being loving and compassionate towards one another. Um, a crucial evidence of people being saved then is displayed in how they care for others, especially the poor, especially the poor. Salvation, it, it, it infuses Christians, saturates Christians with, with a divine sense of compassion that we didn't previously have. Throughout our study of Luke, a key litmus test of whether we are bearing our cross and truly following Christ into His kingdom is how it affects our money usage, how we use our money. Jesus here is painfully redundant. I almost wanted to apologize uh, coming out this week because of how redundant Scripture is. But then I thought, it's Scripture. It's Jesus. This has been redundant. It hits us again today. Hits us again today. Apparently, Jesus, Jesus senses that people aren't going to pick up on this real quick. And I, I think we, we reflect that. We don't pick up on the focus of his compassion real quickly ourselves. So he goes back again and again and again in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus over and over again. And I'll start beginning back as far as chapter 12 here. In this middle section that we've been studying and about to wrap up as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Anyone that we're just reading through these six chapters that take 30 minutes or less, anyone just reading through might complain. They might say, you know what? All Jesus does is preach about money. He said, guard yourselves against every form of greed, not filling barns, instead being rich toward God. That's in chapter 12, verse 21. Do not worry about your life. Neither what you will eat or what you will wear. Chapter 12, verse 22. Do not be afraid, little flock. Sell your possessions and give 
to charity or give alms, give to the poor. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, 12 verse 32. When you give a dinner, do not invite your friends or rich neighbors, but invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, Luke 14 verse 12. What an encouragement that is. By the way, because people give. I, I know some people think, you know, I, if I give, is it really going to change anything? Yeah, it is. You know, we, we don't monitor giving here, as I've said many times, we don't need to go there. But sometimes, because people are so generous in this church, and we've seen it o- over the years, that I, I wish that somehow we could, could acknowledge some people who have given sacrificially. The problem is, I don't know who that is. But God Himself, Christ Himself, God the Son, is going to reward us. We're going to be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So we just need to be content that though there might not be accolades on earth, Christ Himself will give us His accolade. Um, He said, use righteous mammon. We talked about that worldly, unrighteous mammon, worldly wealth to make friends with the gospel. Use it for the proclamation's sake. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Chapter 16, verse 13. Then we were introduced to a rich man. He was living in splendor, wearing purple every day, ignoring the needs of poor and sick Lazarus, who later finds himself in Hades or hell. That's sixteen nineteen. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Chapter 17, verse 33. And finally, and this is just a sampling, there are more, but I think you get the point. Finally, we see a rich young ruler. We just studied it in the last chapter. And Jesus told him, he became very, very sad because Jesus told him, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Yet how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's chapter 18, verse 22. You know, ask yourself, if Jesus were a pastor today of a local church, would you attend where he preaches? Would you want to hear what he has to say? I imagine that we would, though it may challenge us as these scriptures do. Um... There is left no question in the Gospels, no question at all in the Gospels, sadly for some, that how we handle money is inextricably linked and connected to salvation. Can't be separated. Can't be separated. It serves, in fact, as a type of universal litmus test because everybody, both, both rich and poor, everybody handles money. You may have a little bit of it or you might have a lot of it, but everybody has to do this, right? Yet the rich young ruler conveyed to Jesus all my life. I've been outwardly moral. I have kept the commandments since my youth. But once salvation and and a decision to follow you intersects my money, now I'm out. He said, I'm done. That's, That's where I cut it off, said the rich young ruler. We might be stunned to learn how prevalent this mindset is in the church in America today. Separation of 
you're probably going to bring up separation of church and state in the Bible Life group. Um, you didn't do that this morning. It's coming. Good group. Go. 9.15. Um, the separation of church and money. In America, it's, it's so prevalent. By far the wealthiest nation to ever exist by size. By far the wealthiest nation to ever exist on the planet by size and by population. Um, I'm blessed this doesn't describe this church, but in many circles, once a pastor begins to warn or caution or advise about the need to sacrifice and give to the poor, as Jesus repeatedly did, um, now as the, the rich young ruler told Jesus, now you've crossed the line. I'll listen until it, until it comes to money. Or there's another prevalent error seen today, and it is to propose that giving is a systematic method to amass more money. I give in order to, to get. The, to the church you give more, God gives you back more. You know The old tithing thing really works, which is an approach to, to distort the promises God made to Israel and apply, and apply them or misapply them to the church under the new covenant. So people are now giving because they think they can get more out of giving. That, that's, that's not scriptural. As giving in the scripture, it should be prayerful, it should be joyful, it should be uh, sacrificial, according to your heart. Um, we saw this during our scripture reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. For each must do as he has purposed in his own heart, right? Not begrudgingly. Or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. That's what God loves. You've heard it said, this is a very common saying, if giving isn't cheerful, God doesn't want it. Folks, the truth is, we've seen in Luke, if giving for you cannot become cheerful, it's quite possible you're not saved. That's what we've seen in Luke. Um... Or there's another error, the Alistair Begg, I was listening to him this week, he, he brought my attention to it this week, I almost forgot about this one. I give God 10%, and he wants me to enjoy the other 90% on whatever I want. As Alistair Begg correctly says, no, God owns the whole 100%. The whole 100%. It's all His, we are His stewards, who will one day be assessed and rewarded according to how we manage it. We need to be taking care of business every day while he's away. Um, you can see through the conversion of Zacchaeus, Jesus' passionate plea. Passionate plea um, to care for the poor has finally come to fruition in Zacchaeus. Genuine salvation bears fruit. Zacchaeus now becomes symbolic or emblematic of what the privileged and rich young ruler refused to do in the previous chapter. Part with his possessions to care for the poor. By contrast to the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus responds, I'm going to give half. I'm going to give half. Um, note I'm going to note this as well. The rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. If you were just reading through this, let's say you have an ancient scroll or your Bible, and someone's just reading through the Gospel of Luke. This, this, is, this is astonishing. Note here, 
The bottom half of my Bible here, it's a study Bible, so this is pretty much all notes down here. The yellow portion that you see here, that's the rich young ruler, all right? This spot over here, half a page away, that's Zacchaeus. The proximity of these two stories is no accident. Anyone reading it would see that this has been a change from someone who would not obey the will of God, goes away sad, to someone who joyfully responds and gives away generously. No, no way of mistaking this. Um, unlike the rich young ruler, Jesus, Jesus never told Zacchaeus how much he had to give away. You don't have to if someone's regenerate. Shouldn't have to. This is what Zacchaeus concluded himself from a regenerated heart. And, and this change that we see in him, Jesus suggests, is an indication he's saved. This man's been saved. Why does Zacchaeus choose to give to the poor? Why the poor? Well, obviously, Zacchaeus had, had heard somewhere, or he had discovered somewhere, or been told somewhere, this is the will of God the Father, to care for the poor. It's the will of God. Where did he get that idea? Where did he come up with that? Just come up with it off the cuff? No. Compassion is written into the Mosaic Law, just as we've seen it written all over this Gospel. It's written all over the law, it's written all over the gospel. Nothing about this has changed over the thousands of years. Nothing has changed about God. God doesn't change. It's always been, and it remains the will of God to give to the poor. And Zacchaeus has been convicted that now it's up to him to take care of his father's business. I shouldn't need to really elaborate in detail of of how how common this is in the Old Testament and under the law, that relief of the poor was expressed as a very big concern. Very big concern. Uh, when Boaz, for example, commanded Ruth for, for seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord, and when he said to Ruth, may Yahweh reward you, Boaz then embraced his role of being that conduit to Ruth, in order to dispense to Ruth generously. Now, Boaz didn't say, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and then not give Ruth anything uh, for the needs of her body. Uh, for James 2.16 says, well, what use would that be? What use is that? Faith without works is dead. Or, as the Apostle John reminds us, if a brother or sister, it's referring to fellow Christians there. We've talked about this many times. Um, if a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and if someone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's 1 John chapter 3. This isn't, isn't new for most of us here, but if, if you've come in the last several months, perhaps you haven't been exposed to this yet. So it's kind of redundant for the rest of us. The scripture concludes that salvation does not abide in such a person who does not care for the brethren. Folks, this ought to truly alarm us. It ought to alarm us. It ought to caution us. We, ought, we should be very thankful that God is so clear with us. We mustn't skip past without stopping for a moment to consider these things. Uh, for Scripture, 
Scripture forces us right into Zacchaeus' shoes. Forces us in. Um, so we're required to ask ourselves these same questions. We would rather just read it quickly and move on to the next passage. But Scripture forces us into Zacchaeus' shoes to ask, well, how much am I willing to give to the poor? How, how much am I going to keep? Uh, uh, of the portion that I keep, what am I going to spend it on? Has salvation truly come to my house? And am I taking care of my father's business? You know, we, we can't just continue to wiggle out of Zacchaeus' shoes. We can't just insist it, it simply doesn't apply to me. This is 2,000 years ago. It's not for me. When it came to care for the desperately poor, the early church took care of God's business. You know, I, don't, I don't want to narrow this so far as to suggest this is the only thing the church does. What the church does is, is more broad than that, and we'll talk about it next week in proclaiming the gospel. But I almost must firmly emphasize relief of the impoverished Christians plays a crucial role in Scripture. Uh, so Jesus here can't be ignored. He can't be ignored. The parameters of charitable giving. They took on unique characteristics for early Christians. And the overwhelming biblical emphasis or, or focus shows Christians relieving the suffering of brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, nearly, in nearly all the New Testament passages that talk about giving to the poor, um, I can't say all, I haven't reviewed every single one, but quite a few of them, it, nearly all passages in the New Testament describe benevolent giving as primarily a concern for the brethren for the brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who are redeemed. Um, I know this is not a new concept for us, as I've said, but for the benefit of those who recently joined our number, most poverty relief is directed towards poor Christians in Scripture. The brethren, our fellow redeemed, the elect of God, His beloved chosen. They are the cherished apple of God's eye. Those of us here who are Christian are cherished by Him. Those Christians in Zimbabwe are cherished by God equally as He cherishes us. Um, impoverished Christians are the focus of Scripture. Yet they are all too often among the most forgotten. All too often among the most forgotten. Um, it, it seems many Christians when they're thinking about foreign missions, conclude this. Um, while impoverished Christians in India or Africa, they're already saved. Let, let's find a location where there are none and dump all of our money there. No, what we need to dump there is the gospel where people aren't saved. For the idea that if we... We just simply dump enough resources on unbelievers that, that they'll, eventually, they'll eventually have to love us and, and have to love God completely misunderstands the sovereignty of God. Completely misinterprets 
uh, spiritual deadness. Doesn't have a grip on total depravity. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Hang with me here for a minute. Hang with me. Folks, you can't buy salvation. Simon the sorcerer tried that, right? No one can purchase salvation. We must proclaim the gospel, preach Christ, have confidence the Holy Spirit will convict and redeem. You know, the the Apostle Paul didn't travel around the Roman Empire giving out handouts, trying to bribe people to the gospel. I mean, if I just give them a little bit more, then they'll respond. No, they will respond to the proclaimed word of God in the gospel if they're being convicted of sin. No amount of, of extra influence that we can buy is going to change their heart. It's, a, it's a, an erroneous idea, really, that you first have to meet a sinner's felt need, just to prime the spiritual pump, before they will respond to the gospel. That, that's, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. Paul never relied on that. The felt need that unsaved people have to have is a divine spirit of conviction. They need to feel the need to be saved that the Spirit gives. That's the felt need that we need to meet as Christians. Until that point, until they are convicted of sins, and and until after they've heard the gospel, no amount of charity can ever regenerate a heart. No amount of money you spend can buy salvation. We have to be completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to change hearts. Then they come, they're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the church. Now they're saints. You follow me? The lame man begging for alms, to him Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Stand up and walk, right? You didn't go around and say, well, if I, give you, if I give you a little bit, then maybe will you hear me out? Oh, if they're convicted of sins, they'll hear you out. If they're not convicted of sins, there's nothing you can do. They'll just sit there and ignore you or walk away. Um, with Lydia down by the river, we see it. The Ethiopian eunuch. The, the apostles always relied upon the word of God and the Holy Spirit to change hearts. They always depended upon an evidence of conviction And then gave the word of God in order to save, to bring them into the redeemed, the church. Uh, Folks, this is why the gospel always comes first. This is a hard one to bend our minds around. Hard one to bend our minds around in a world where Christians are, are happy to hand out a cup of soup and a sandwich. All good. Hand it out to the poor, yet sheepishly refrain from giving them what they really need. The gospel. What good is a soup line if you aren't teaching them about sin and redemption and and reconciliation to God through Christ? You're going nowhere with that apart from conviction of sins by the Holy Spirit. Um, So many would rather do random acts of kindness rather than proclaim the gospel because the gospel might offend somebody. Well, Scripture guarantees us, folks, the gospel will offend. We're promised that. Don't, 
Don't hear me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Christians don't evade random acts of kindness. We're to be known of people of compassion that do reach out when we come across a need to help people. But when charity is directed or aimed at something, it must always be united to a clear presentation of the gospel. It can't just be good deeds without the gospel. Everything we do in word or deed, we do it all in the name of the Lord Christ Jesus. Everything. But I will declare, and we see it in Scripture, the gospel is not hindered if we don't have something to hand somebody. It's not hindered if we, don't, if we can't meet their immediate need. Their immediate need is Christ. Um, we're going to discover next week in, in the parable of the money usage or par- parable of the minas that the gospel proclamation we will be duly rewarded for just for proclaiming it faithfully and it produces results. It produces results. Our message always has to include sin, guilt before God, reality of hell, eternal redemption only through Christ, through no other path. My favorite quote, I said this morning, we had a membership orientation this morning for people who are uh, considering becoming members, and I shared with them a, a favorite quote of the late and great Adrian Rogers. This is a good one. He said, if you relieve a person's physical need and do not share with them the truth of the gospel, you have merely made this world for them a more comfortable place to go to hell from. That's Adrian Rogers. He was a good preacher. He'd say, what a waste of time and resources. What a waste of time and resources. We won't be rewarded of activity that we do that is void of the gospel. You haven't helped anyone. You haven't helped anyone. I know, I told you this is going to be controversial. Therefore, this church, we went through our purpose statement this morning, the membership orientation. We don't partner with non-Christian charities that don't permit, don't permit us to, to preach the gospel. We, we just don't spend our time in it. It's not that we, we, we don't appreciate some things that they may do, but if we can't proclaim the gospel... We can't be involved with it. Uh, one, a great example, I've used it here before, not to beat them up, but Habitat for Humanity. It prohibits proselytizing for Jesus. You are not permitted to do it on any of their jobs. Well, for, forget it. We'll work with Samaritan's Purse and we'll do some hurricane relief where Samaritan's Purse does everything in the name of Jesus. We'll work with Salvation Army, who still has a solid doctrinal foundation underneath them, that, that they, are, they are there for the gospel. And with all this said, with all this said about winning people through the gospel, that's how their hearts are converted. Scripture and the early church focus on relieving the suffering of saints. The suffering of saints. Fellow Christians. Even as Christ said, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was naked, clothes to wear. And when the sheep asked, Oh, Lord, Lord, when, I, when did I do that? Jesus responds, As often as you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. One of his brothers or his sisters, as often as we did it to them, you did it to me. And, and at the separation of the sheep and the goats, uh, he's going to reward his sheep 
for ministering to the brothers of Christ. Um, Jesus' charitable focus is the brethren. Not exclusive, don't get me wrong. Today we're talking about relief of the saints. God chose us from the foundation of the world. Our, land, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He loves his elect. We must also. We must also. Um, folks, God's sovereignty, it matters. It matters. These are not insignificant peripheral um, understandings. Doctrine affects how we respond. It really does. Your understanding of the church and God's sovereignty, it, it, it impacts what you do with your money, uh, what you get involved with, where you spend your time, where you invest everything. Doctrine affects how we behave, and God has a unique divine affection for His chosen. A unique divine, divine love um, knowing this, it will probably not surprise you to hear that healthier and wealthier churches took collections for impoverished Christians in other countries. Namely, at that time, Jerusalem, who was suffering, uh, enduring not only persecution, but also uh, famine, as history tells us. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 refer to this as a ministry to the saints. Relief ministry to the saints. I want to tell you too, when I, as I read a few more of these, and you figure 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which was the long one, and chapter 9, the shorter one, butted up against one another, this principle takes up a lot of real estate in Scripture. It's not something that we're just like, oh, hum. No, it, it is a major focus and takes up a lot of space in the Bible. Here's a few select verses from chapter 8. That are, that are normally, by the way, used to bolster just general giving. But, nonetheless, in verse 3, referring to the generosity of the churches that were in Macedonia, Paul says this, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. Wow. Macedonia, the churches of Macedonia were begging urgently to participate in this relief effort for suffering Christians. We've got part of that verse written on our giving boxes back here. To display the passionate concern Macedonia churches had for impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, now Paul describes this international relief effort. So he continues by instructing Corinth, saying, Abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others, think Macedonia, the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter. I always appreciate Paul when he says stuff like that. I give my opinion in this matter. For this is to your advantage. Who were, first, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, meaning relief effort, but also a desire to do it. But now finish doing it. 
so that just as there was the readiness and desire to do it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. About a year earlier, we see Paul in in the closing chapter of 1 Corinthians urging Corinth, the same church, to begin this relief effort. Listen as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. This is a whole different book of the Bible now. 1 Corinthians versus 2 Corinthians. Now concerning the collection for the saints, ring a bell, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections may be made when I come. When I arrive, says Paul, whomever you may approve, a delegate of yours, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. What was the major motivation? What was A, at least A, not the maybe, but A. What, is, what was a major motivation for the early church taking collections on the first day of the week? To pay, to pay the pastor, of course, right? You know, to, to, to add a choir loft and, and all kinds of engineered expensive acoustics to make everything sound really great, right? No. It was for Christian poverty relief. A, a collection for the saints. And, and now a year later, Paul is again telling Corinth, Finish what you've started. Finish what you've started. Now I'm all for paying the pastor. I've got to say that on Jeremiah's behalf. Their scripture recommends it. But it kind of chafes me when passages like these are exclusively applied to collections for making churches more comfortable, better parking, you know, finer Finer coffee, softer cushions and upholstery, but with any lack of remembrance for the poor. This didn't just include Corinth. Uh, It wasn't only the churches in Galatia and Achaia. It wasn't just Macedonia that Paul involved in this. He's roping in others. Uh, In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes again in the closing chapter, 15, chapter 15, verse 24. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual gifts, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, I have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, and I will go on by way, to, uh, by way of you to Spain. I think it's pretty hard to suggest that this only means Jerusalem. That we can just wiggle out of this and say, well, it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the, the origin of the gospel and, and you know, it went out from there. So that's the reason we're helping out Christians there. I, I think this, this with, with 
the multiple verses that say to relieve the the suffering of the brethren and the, and the general ones and, and all the real estate that we see in Scripture taken up of taking care of the poor. This isn't just something with Jerusalem. Can't wiggle out of it. Uh, this, this, this principle just takes up way too much space in Scripture. Though Paul had never been to Rome, he wanted them to know this relief effort was going on because, well, because this is how Christians behave. And back again in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul provides the reasons they should contribute. Saying, For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need. That there may be equality, as it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest. Listen to the language in all of these. How urgent it is. Uh, He himself very earnest. He has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this... But he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. Gracious work. Which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. How do we turn our back on that? Paul closes the chapter with this. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you, as for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love. It's for real, folks. It's for real. Uh, Relief to destitute Christians, it's a much bigger emphasis in Scripture than most are willing to admit. Why are American churches typically so quiet about it is it because we're the ones holding the most dough so was Zacchaeus he said you know what I'm going to do I'm going to give half once Jesus got a hold of his heart in a practical sense seeing what Zacchaeus did I'm just going to put it real practical here because we need to go. We have about 53000 remaining on the building debt. Uh, it is due in full next January. One regular payment should eliminate, our, our regular payments should eliminate about half of that. I'd love to burn that note, maybe at the fish fry or some event that we have. I'd love to burn that note come fall. And for, for our fall meeting, that we approve normally late October or November, our elders have recommended doubling missions giving in the next budget year to allocate it to pursue urgent and essential relief for the saints. That's what's been proposed. I think it'd be $12,000 extra or something like that, if I'm right, to go to urgent relief of the saints. Many of you have met our missionaries, uh, Jim Rendell, his wife Sandy, 
and uh, their daughter, Crystal, who is in, in Niger. And um, Jim and Sandy travel to and fro Africa, but are assigned stateside now for a while. Uh, meanwhile, Crystal remains serving in Niger. And I shared this with, with Jim by phone early this week. He just said, there are so many Christians over there that don't have anything. They don't have essential food. They don't have clothing. They don't have basic human needs. It's good, good news that he, he told me because I was asking about what channels we might have to really see this work, you know, instead of just throwing it in a, in a general fund that gets shipped somewhere. And Where could we really see this work? And I knew them being over in Niger, they might have seen some of this. And, and he said, oh, I'm going to talk to my wife when I get home. When he get home, and he said, you know what? Crystal is here. Crystal's back on furlough. And he goes, we're going to try and make it down there. So this may be one channel. We've got uh, Kim Hibbard in India. Maybe another channel. We've got the Bjerks in Hungary. There might be channels we can fulfill this with people we know. And, uh, you know, we don't have to buy everybody's cell phones and and laptops. Scripture says with, with food and covering, with these we'll be content. So basic human essentials. We don't have to enrich everyone. But think of what a four-inch mattress might mean to a widow. Think about those things. SIM, their sending agency, has a 150-bed field hospital right at the end of a dirt runway in, I think it's pronounced Galmi, that serves Christians and non-Christians. You remember when he's here this last time, he showed us pictures of it. Um, they have close and immediate contacts, he says, to people who maintain a Christian orphanage. Who knows what opportunities could come. Six years ago, this is how I said earlier, you're such a generous congregation. How do I know that? Not because I know anybody's individual giving. Um, I know it because six years ago we were saddled with $460,000 in debt. God has been gracious. You have been generous. The people of this church have been exceedingly compassionate. We're almost there. We are almost there. May God's grace help us finish what we have started. Let's do His work. Let's pray.